Musk didn't have to convince the government to go along with his idea. So in a, in a, where, in a country where science, scientific research is controlled by the state, and if you look at the Soviet Union during the moon, moon race, this is a really crystal clear example of this, people had wacky ideas, they were kicked out. And, um, and this is why the N1 rocket was a disaster, is because anyone who suggested improving it was, you know, how, how dare you suggest that the way the government wants to do it is bad, and then the thing spins out of control and lands on a building. You know, that, that's why Russia didn't make it to the moon. And, and America did, even though it was a government-run program, because people who had good ideas were allowed to express them. Even better with SpaceX now is that you must didn't have to convince any Senate oversight committee that he had a good idea. He just had to convince some investors. Welcome to The Pin Factory, the Adam Smith Institute's podcast. My name is Daniel Pryor, and I'm the head of research here at the ASI. And in this week's episode, I'm very pleased to be joined by Thomas Walkerworth, the associate editor of the Objective Standard, a fellow and editor at the Objective Standard Institute, and an Ayn Rand fellow at the Foundation for Economic Education's Henry Hazlitt Fellowship Program. In this episode, we'll be discussing Rand's moral case for freedom, the state of freedom in the UK more broadly, uh, and the relationship between freedom and innovation. So I guess to start off, Tom, for the benefit of listeners who maybe aren't as familiar with Ayn Rand's work and objectivism as a philosophy more broadly, could you briefly outline, and I realise it's hard to outline in brief, it's a, a lot of work um, to cover, but briefly outline her view of morality and its relationship with uh, the value of freedom? Sure, yeah. So Rand's approach to any concept is always to say, what is this thing and why do we need it? So in the case of morality, morality, she defined it as a code of values to inform human choices and actions. So it's the code of values that you refer to whenever you have a decision to make and an action to carry out. Why do we need it? Obviously, as we go through life, we're faced with all these choices, all these possible courses of action. We can't just arbitrarily make a binary decision every time. I'll just think I'll do this job or that one. We need a framework with which through which to uh, assess those questions and we either get that framework from somewhere else, like we get it from a religion or from the culture around us, or, or we kind of just build up this mongrel sense of you know, undefined, vague notions of what is and isn't right. So, you know, a lot of us think, you know, hurting people is wrong generally and, you know, being good is right. But they're vague and undefined terms. And, and she was keen to get much more specific and clear on, on what's moral and what's not. So her approach after that is to look at reality and say, what in reality can give us an idea of what is and isn't moral behavior? Uh, And so she observed the fact that human beings are individuals. Each of us has our own values, our own wants, our own desires. So she identified that the individual human being is where value and ethics come from. They only relate to individual human beings. So the society as a whole can't value something. So only you or I or an individual person can can value, can even con- conceive of morality and ethics. So for her, the individual human being is the source of morality and, and her formulation, to cut it short, for the interest of time, uh, of, of what a moral life consists of is basically advancing your own flourishing, your own happiness. So um, that's why she's well known for being an advocate of selfishness. That's often misunderstood because for her, selfishness isn't what a lot of us mean by the term, which is you know going out there and being self-serving backstabber and you know committing crimes and fleecing people, that kind of thing. Selfishness for her meant rational self-interest. So it meant 
doing the things that are rationally in the interests of a flourishing life. And, and for her, that meant living in a society that respects everybody's rights, because, you know, if you live in a society that doesn't, then your rights are as likely to get violated as anyone's. Uh, and that kind of society is going to produce the, the most flourishing, the most... It, for her, there isn't a dichotomy between practical and moral. They are the same thing. So, um, you know, it's, it's a moral society because it's one that's based on everybody's freedom to flourish, but it's also happens to, well, not happens to be, but by virtue of that fact, is also the society that produces the... The, the most, uh, what, what, how you might you say, you know, the most productivity, the most physical flourishing for human beings as well. Yeah, I think one of the things I've always found fascinating and quite appealing about Rand is that unlike many uh, free market or free market adjacent thinkers, she's not just focused on the policy side of things, you know, the, okay, what should we do in this particular case when it comes to building a new railway or when it comes to um, how we should raise taxes and what level they should be it's very much also as well as those things um, and at its center a guide for practical human action on a day-to-day basis right it's it's instructive for how we live our lives outside of the, the realm of policy formation that obviously the asi is is primarily involved with and it reminds me in some ways um of the distinction between thin and thick libertarianism that I believe a, a term coined by Roderick Long, who, who placed himself on the, the left of the, the libertarian movement. But it's similar to me in a sense that it's not just talking about, okay, here's what the state should do and what the state shouldn't do, though that is an important and a key kind of outgrowth of the underlying philosophy. It's also about how we act as individuals in our interpersonal relationships and in our everyday lives um, and really forms a more comprehensive guide to human action i think than is capable of being done by but kind of thin libertarianism right it has thin libertarianism has very little to say in itself as to how we should conduct ourselves in our own personal affairs Um, but i'm interested to know first off if you have any response to that but also how you arrived uh, at your your views with regards to objectivism did you go from zero interest in politics economics philosophy to reading rand and then say yep this one's for me um i found what i believe or was there other thinkers that maybe influenced you beforehand and that you you placed yourself in contrast with how did that all end up happening yeah i mean I'll, i'll come back quickly on what you said first which is just to note that yeah as you say objectivism is a an integrated philosophy for living life so it's not just a political philosophy like socialism is, for instance. So, um, or you know, capitalism for that matter is in you know, politics is one element of philosophy. But for Rand to have a political position on anything, you need to know why you have that position, what values that position is based on. So, if you consider yourself libertarian, you believe in freedom. Why is freedom valuable? And that goes right the way back to the bedrock of philosophy, which is what kind of world do we live in? How do we know it? And she builds up from those basics. And the reason it's called objectivism is because she always does that based on objective reality, based on things that anyone can go out and observe and then follow the chain of reasoning from. So she never asks you to take anything on faith like a religion does. And she never asks you to accept a categorical imperative or an edict like some later philosophers do. It's always here's a thing that anyone can go out and see in reality. Human beings need to be free to flourish. Here's the following, here's a chain of reasoning that derives from that, right back to basic stuff like existence exists all the way through to her theories of aesthetics and theories of politics. So she built this whole system up from the ground up, from the first principles. 
in terms of my personal development, when I was younger, I am 32 now, but when I was like 16, 17, I was flipping violently uh, between sort of extreme political positions. And I think in retrospect, that was because I, ha I had this developing system of ideas that didn't fit into the boxes that I was told I was supposed to fit into. So, you know, as, as a young lad in a British school, you're supposed to be your Labour or your Conservative. And, you know, there's these sort of soft left, soft right at the time boxes. And that left right spectrum just didn't make sense to me then. I know, understand why better now, why that doesn't make sense. But at the time, I was just thinking, well, you know, I, I like some stuff about Britain. Does that make me nationalist? But like, you know, I, I believe in gay rights and you know, equality and liberty, you know, all, basically your people should be free to live how they want that's left-wing isn't it and so i was bouncing around from socialism to sort of you know quite ukip kind of territory for a while and then bouncing back to like soft left guardian reader and then flipping around and eventually i discovered this term libertarian and i thought that sounds like it represents me finally yeah and this is like still when i was about 20 and um and yeah so um by sort of coincidence really not in parallel i was also at the time really interested in um Sort of discussions of religion and atheism. So I was following a lot of Richard Dawkins and Christopher Hitchens and people like that. And it was just through the course of me watching those videos on those subjects that YouTube threw up a recommendation of Ayn Rand's interview with Mike Wallace. Uh, and going into that, the first thing she says in that is that ra man's rational mind is his means of knowing reality. Uh, and I was like, well, wow, that's precisely what I've always felt you know I was a kid growing up watching Star Trek I was looking at the Vulcans and thinking that's the society I'd love to live in where everyone's logical like not that extreme but you know everyone everyone thinks rationally and um, you know is curious about the world and she just went through that video hitting what I thought were disparate opinions I had that I started to realize were all connected they're all based on a common theme so um, it was really that integration of different opinions I already held like schools shouldn't be run by the government and privatization made the railways better and things like that. And it's like, oh, hang on, all of these actually relate to each other in a way I'd never expected. And she opened my mind to philosophy more broadly, to studying history and all sorts of things. And, and on that point about kind of opening your mind to philosophy more broadly, you mentioned how Rand's philosophy is, at least in, in part, a guide for living in the real world and day-to-day -day life in a way that many other free market thinkers don't really touch upon. But that's also formed, I think, the basis of, of at least some criticisms from kind of academic philosophers, um, contemporary philosophers who would look at her work and say, mm, this is more of a, a kind of self-help manual than it is a, a serious philosophy, right? I remember if I ever brought up Rand at my university philosophy seminars, and I obviously get a derisive look and a, a kind of note of mm, that's Rand isn't really a philosopher capital P um, how do you respond to these sort of criticisms if, if and if they are substantive criticisms or, or at least general opinions of Rand do you think that actually she does provide in her work you know a, a robust kind of quote-unquote academic philosophy as well as this guide to life yeah, I mean, I think those criticisms kind of fall into three categories. And to be kind to the more genuine ones, I'm just going to dismiss the first category of people who are just don't know about her and are being derisive for the hell of it, because I don't want to straw man everyone else by saying it's that. Um, there's kind of two other categories. There's one, On the one hand, there's people who understand the basics of her ideas to some extent. Like they understand that she's pro-selfishness and pro-freedom and limited government, but they don't. Un they haven't got into the deeper philosophy. And I think that's a large chunk of it. 
which is um, the really insightful things in her philosophy are things like her theory of rights, her theory of concept formation. She's, if you read Introduction to Objectivist Epistemology, she has this deep, detailed, grounds-up theory of how we know what we know, how we form concepts, how we make abstractions, uh, how axioms are, are derived, the difference between an axiomatic concept and, and any other kind of concept, how concepts are built on percepts. So she has this really detailed theory of knowledge. Um, which is based on Aristotle's theory, but developed significantly further. So I assume some people just don't realise that, and I encounter that quite a lot, where people think, you know, they've read Atlas Shrugged, it's like, oh, it's a work of fiction, how can that be philosophy? It's like, no, she did a lot of work after that, that was her process, that was her way, as she'd you know, been a screenwriter when she was younger, her way of developing her ideas was to write stories and imagine, you know, she, her original process was she wanted to write a, a story with a true hero in it. So she had to do the thinking of what's a true hero, what's moral behavior, what what does that all look like? And that was her thinking process. But her nonfiction after Atlas Shrugged fleshes it out in, in proper detail. So that's one group. And then I think another group, um, and this is more the academic philosophers. If you read the Stanford Encyclopedia of Philosophy's entry on Rand, you see this really clearly. Um, the other group just don't like the fact that she didn't play by their rules. So she was not interested in being verbose. And at the, at the time, she, when she was writing, she was being relentlessly attacked by the philosophic establishment. So she really didn't have any time to engage with them. She wasn't interested in engaging with them because they weren't interested in engaging with her. And she was really adamant on the idea that philosophy is for everyone to use in their lives. So it shouldn't be this high castle, unreachable, unintelligible thing. It should be something that any man off the street with reasonable intelligence can pick up and understand and apply to their lives. So she wrote in simple language. She uh, did what my, uh, my lead editor, Craig Biddle, says uh, calls Dick and Janeing her language, which is making it as plain and simple as possible, putting everything down. I think that's a really good principle to apply in writing generally is that even if you're writing about particle physics, if you're if you're writing for a general audience, it should be understandable to a 14-year-old. And you should be able to, if you understand the concepts in detail, in real rich academic detail, you should be able to distill it down into more simple language for somebody to get the, the general gist. So she was really intent. And the book I mentioned earlier, Introduction to Objectivist Epistemology, that's richer and more detailed because that's supposed to be a more technical guide to the philosophy. But books like Virtue of Selfishness and Philosophy Who Needs It are written on a you know, accessible, simple language basis because she wanted people to actually implement it in their day-to-day -day lives. She didn't want to be in this kind of philosophic you know, armchair group that's detached from the rest of society. She wanted to really make a difference in the real world. I imagine that a lot of that hostility comes from the, the simple left-leaning nature of academia. Um, as far as I'm aware, actually, philosophy in general in, in the academy tends to have a little bit more viewpoint diversity than perhaps some other subjects, but nonetheless is, is afflicted by the same um, the same general lack of, of viewpoint diversity that, that you have there. And one of the things that kind of I find quite curious and, and somewhat of a double standard is a lot of Rand's work, at least to me, reminds me of of the work of of other virtue ethicists so i say other virtue ethicists maybe you wouldn't classify her in in that camp so to speak but at least the focus on kind of practical character traits uh, and and ideas and and rules to live your own life by you know you said that she was inspired in her epistemology by aristotle and i can see some kind of grain of similar approach to how you think about morality 
on the practical day-to-day level um, in, in Rand's ethics and morality as well. Um, and yet, you know, you'd see people, you'd see people from the philosophical establishment looking at uh, Aristotle and saying, oh, yes, that's a very serious piece of work um, on, on virtue ethics. And when Rand tries to, to do something in, in a similar sort of vein, at least in, in some respects, then it gets laughed out of town. And I wonder whether that's because she's doing it from, uh, you know, a, a pro-capitalist, free market, individualist perspective. Yeah, and I think that's definitely part of it. She was, I mean, she's reading against the dominant culture in, in, in our society and the culture that's been dominant you know, since the fall of Rome, which you know is this Christian altruist mentality. Even people who aren't Christians or aren't religious at all still often import that morality, the, the altruist morality. You see this a lot with the Richard Dawkins types. They, they basically bulk import Christian ethics into their theoretically atheist worldview and, and try and sort of retro justify it. And, uh, and you know, that's not the scientific way to approach morality. It's the scientific way to approach morality is to apply the same principles that you apply to physics and biology and say, what's observable? What can we derive from, from fact? And um, what was, there was one other point I was going to make on that. Oh, yeah, which is that, you know, yeah, like I say, people take Aristotle seriously and people take Thales seriously, who thought that everything was made of water. Like, you know, probably absurd idea, but because he was at the beginning of philosophy, you know, 2,500 years ago, and he was the first to think about ideas in detail. You know, we take him seriously, we take Pythagoras seriously, who thought that geometry answers moral questions and, you know, love is 49 and things like that. So, you know, we take them seriously because they're ancient to some extent, I think, mm-hmm. and because they were at the, the front guard of that. Um, Rand is was working in the 30s, 40s through to the 70s. And, you know, we have her on video. We have, we, it's, she's so recent. She's not had that much time to make an impact in the culture, it takes a couple hundred years for, you know, if you look at somebody like Immanuel Kant, for their waves to really ripple through the culture. And um, so she's so recent. And also we have the ability to watch videos and look at photographs, which we don't have with those earlier people. So it's much more tangible to, to think about her. If she, if you, she was the same person, but 500 years earlier, we'd probably think about her very differently. Yeah. If you're on YouTube, then we just sadly don't have the same reverence as uh, if you were born two to three thousand years ago. That's a, a very good point. And I think um, I it seems like I can detect some some crossover with Nietzsche's ideas when it comes to that importing of Christian morality into notionally secular approaches to ethics as well. I guess just to, to kind of finish off, coming off that point on, on altruism versus um, objectivism, I guess. How do you think that objectivism really sits within the broader free market movement, because, and I count myself amongst them, you know, I'm one of those those filthy utilitarians rather than an objectivist and approach my, my kind of journey towards uh, advocating for free markets and free people is from very a very different starting point uh, to, to yourself and other objectivists. Does that translate into, into very many practical differences in how we try to advance freedom or perhaps how best we think to advance it in terms of policy changes? Yeah, um, the main principle is, the main difference is that if you don't have consistent principles underlying all your positions, I'm using you in the sort of one sense, you know, not you personally, but if one doesn't have, um, you know, consistent principles underlying all their decisions, then you you are going to make decisions sometimes that aren't philosophically consistent with the other decisions you're making. Mm. So, um, and yeah, so it's generally actually pretty good on this, but some of the other free market think tanks I've seen doing you know things like encouraging a new regulation as a, as a solution to a problem because they're thinking oh well it will have this you know practical consequence 
not realizing that they are undermining the very basis of the defense of their principles. So, you know, if, you, if you're literally putting out papers saying, you know, we're fine with the government violating our rights in this way because it will, you know, cause an increase in GDP for a couple of years, like that completely subverts the actual case for, for liberty. And uh, so that's one really obvious example. And, and I see that happening with a couple of think tanks. They, they really vary in, in terms of, you know, I, I think ASI and, and some like FEE have, you know, quite clear ideas and principles to some extent. And so, you know, are generally fairly good on this, but some others clearly don't at all. And, and it really shows through in, in the sort of ideological splash of different ideas that come through in their content. And um, so that's one thing. And then there's also the fact that, as, as you said earlier, it's it's a complete philosophy for living life. So even if you know, you're fairly consistently advocating for liberty in your sort of public policy, if you're not applying the same principles at home, it's going to have a lot of consequences for your personal life and how you interact yeah. with other human beings. And so, you know, the principle, like one of the most core objectivist principles is that interactions between human beings should be voluntary. So every time two human beings interact in any way, in any context, it should be, they both consented to, and, and it's, they're doing a value for value exchange between them. And that applies as much to a romantic relationship as a business deal, as, as your relationship with the government. And so, you know, an objectivist is never going to violate that principle anywhere. And I, I've experienced personally, like how much that improves your life when you live all your relationships on that principle and also apply it in the political sphere. And um, and having those kinds of primary values that underlie all of the other more concrete stuff, like the policies and the you know specific choices you make, really just gives you this lens that sees straight through the kind of clouded mess of political ideas and ideologies. And you start to realize that a lot of the categorizations we use to group people's views together and to group policies together are non-essential they're not based on a fundamental principle they're kind of I mean, just look at the political parties in this country like the conservative party labor party the liberal democrats they don't have a unifying principle under them any of them they're all mismatches of different inconsistent philosophies and you know half the lib dems and half the conservatives really belong together and half the lib dems and half the labors really belong together and it's just you know it's you start when you start applying fundamental principles, you really start to break down a lot of those sort of false structures that exist in our society. Well, speaking of the various party groupings in the UK and their often very inconsistent values and approaches, I think it's time to move on to the next section of this podcast, which is looking at the state of freedom and liberty in the UK at the moment. And I guess just to start off this section, how do you see? the United Kingdom in comparison to countries elsewhere in the world in terms of how free we are? Um, are there societies out there that you think are perhaps measure up closer to the free market or indeed the objectivist ideal in your view? Um, so the problem is in, in the world, like you generally get, you either have countries that just aren't free at all. You, you have the Saudi Arabias and the North Koreas, or, or you have countries that are free in one area and not another. So you get a lot of countries that are either free in economics or free socially. So you get countries like the Nordic countries, like Sweden and Norway, which are really free socially, like they're excellent places to live in terms of your freedom to choose how to live your life. And, uh, and Canada is another good example of that in most respects, not in all. Um, and then you get countries like Japan, which are, or Singapore, which are really economically liberal and you can flourish in business, but your choices as an individual are heavily constrained. Like Japan, you can't even be a citizen if you were born there, if your parents were foreign like or you know singapore you can't chew gum like you, you basically basic individual freedoms are completely lacking but the economic liberty is there that's kind of what hong kong's turning into now as well mm. um 
I think Hong Kong for a long time was a model of liberty. But um, in terms of Britain's role in that, I think Britain, in terms of the balance of the two, which really shouldn't be two, they should be one and the same thing. But you know, as it's as it's implemented, is probably one of the freest countries on earth today. And arguably, it's freer than the United States in many respects. And, and the US prides itself on being the home of freedom, but it really has lost that title over the last fifty years or so. So, um, and you know, if you just look at economics in Britain versus the US, you know, we have privately owned airports, privately provided utilities. You know, there's much less business regulation. You don't need permits to start half as many businesses in Britain as you do in most U.S. states. Uh, and then um, you know, the U.S. still has some areas where it's sort of held on to its tradition of liberty, but it's really lost it. And it's, it's got this runaway police state that's completely out of control. So um, really, yeah, Britain, um, together with Ireland and a couple of other European countries, are kind of at the forefront of liberty in general. Um, but some countries elsewhere are further ahead either just on the economic side, mostly just on the economic side. The social liberty really has its centre in Northern Europe, I think. It's interesting that you bring up that those two things, the social and economic liberty, should obviously be one thing because it should be part of a cohesive worldview that in general supports freedom. I, I am interested to know, though, kind of, is there any way of, of kind of prioritising one over the other in terms of its importance? Now, obviously, that might depend on, on which country you're in as to which area is particularly bad or do you think that you can't really you, you can't really focus on one without the other if you're being consistent in your your activism or your public policy work yeah i mean they're not actually different things if they're looked at mm. from a fundamental point of view so if you believe in liberty then that should mean liberty it should mean you know your your if if your house belongs to you then your business belongs to you you know if you have a right to decide who to marry you have a right to decide what to buy and that includes whose company to buy and what you know they are the same principle clearly there's a hierarchy of value like values always fall into a hierarchy you know, some things are more important than other things in our lives so you know somebody shouldn't be denying you food if you know somebody should be holding you in a prison and saying you can't eat and they shouldn't be holding you in a prison and saying you can't play on your nintendo ds but which is the more important thing to get access to more urgently? You know, if, if they say you can have one or the other, you're going to say, give me the food. So you know, in a similar situation, like, you know, it's probably more important to an individual that they're free to, you know, own a home and what well, some other good examples, like, you know, be able to freely trade to buy basic essential goods. Like, you know, there are some liberties that are probably more urgent than say, you know, the liberty to run a railway. Like, you know, there, there are some things that are lower down the priority line, but, fundamentally it's the same principle of liberty that's at question either way uh, and whenever the government starts like creeping forward and saying oh we'll take over that and we'll restrict this it's always the thin end of the wedge it's always a, a step towards greater control and we've seen this so much recently with covid but we've seen it over the last 100 years or so government always moves towards more control it never reduces its size its extent it's so much harder to repeal a control than it is to put it in place so just any infraction that moves the government towards greater control is a threat to even those most fundamental liberties. I found your answer on on actually saying that the UK was in general at least a freer country than the US right now really really interesting because that's certainly not the view I think of a lot of uh, fellow travellers in the free market movement that I speak to. Um, I think that maybe that comes from a difference in that kind of hierarchy of values so it might be that in Britain we have a very large tax burden, but we don't have the police state that the US has. It might be that in Britain, we're sliding towards more control over lifestyles when it comes to what we eat and drink and smoke and vape and whatnot. But at the same time, 
you know, we're not quite as bad when it comes to the US and in various other areas. Um, I guess, have you have you come across that that kind of challenge before? Because ultimately, I mean, the, the US, and again, I, I know I'm coming to GDP growth is the most important thing here, but the US is a significantly richer country than, than the UK. But I suppose you could say, as is Singapore, right? Uh, well, yeah, it depends on, on how you measure GDP. But the... Um... There's, there's a couple of things. I mean, I spend a lot of time in the US and um, and I make this point to Americans quite a lot. And some of them go, oh, yeah, you're right. It's awful. And some of them go, hey, no, we're the freest country on earth. And it's like, you know, well, the, as you say, it, 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 it comes back to that hierarchy of values. So um, to my mind, like, yeah, the tax burden in the UK is, is a bit crazy. It's not anywhere near as bad as it is in some places, but it's, you know, 20% VAT. And in most US states, you know, six or 9% is quite common. And so, yeah, that's, better obviously in those states and the u.s has the advantage of its federal structure so different states maintain a sort of competitive regime on things like taxation which is a huge benefit to the u.s um but the fact that in the uk a cop is not going to walk up and shoot you through the window of your car because you're black is really you know, far more important honestly yeah. and um yeah there's, there's basic stuff like that like the, the level of policing in the u.s and, and the fact that u.s police do so many things that they shouldn't be doing like parking enforcement you know you don't want some power trip cop just you know giving you a parking ticket and getting you know larry every time you disagree with them you know we, we have life really good in britain on, on that kind of front you know the fact you can basically walk up to a police officer in britain and take a selfie with them you know it's it's a totally different level of, of force really from what you have in america but, um, but yeah, the US is significantly free in other respects. It's also, it's a powerhouse economy, partly because it's running off the legacy of the liberty it used to have. So it created so much wealth and got itself so far ahead in the 19th and early 20th centuries. And if you look at the state of technology in Britain versus America, even before the Second World War, but particularly like in the 40s and 50s, like the US is light years ahead. Like the US had, were, were driving cars around and, you know, they had all their trains were diesel powered and they were using jet airliners like way before Britain was you know, anywhere near that position. That's not the case now. Like, the, you know, if you fly in America today, internally, chances are you'll be on an Airbus or an Embraer like plane built in another country. And, you know, it's, it's fallen way behind on that kind of stuff. It's still the world leader in drugs research, in space innovation, a lot of those fields. And as long as it holds on to the relative liberty it has in the tech sphere and and in aerospace and things like that, it will stay ahead in some of those areas, but it's certainly lost a lot of ground in others. And uh, I think it's lost erosion of liberty is, is part of why, and it's part of why countries like Israel are able to corner in on that and become world leaders or Korea, South Korea, for example, become world leaders in some of those technologies instead. Well, let's uh, delve into that. It actually provides a very good segue into the, the final section of this podcast, which is on that relationship between freedom and innovation. So we recently had uh, Deirdre McCloskey come in to deliver a talk at the ASI on this kind of relationship between liberal values and also, I think, importantly, a, a liberal culture. Uh, and the rise of innovation and the great enrichment of the Industrial Revolution um, and whatnot. I think I'd like to, to kind of start off by thinking about how this applies or what we can learn from objectivism here. And specifically, I think what we can learn from what sort of culture or what sort of people do we want or need to be in order to become innovators and inventors on the level that you still see in Silicon Valley and, as you mentioned, in places like Israel? What is it that we can do on an individual level, quite aside from kind of public policy debates, um, to bring about this, this kind of open-minded culture of innovation? 
Yeah. Um, I So my feeling on this for a long time has been that the biggest blocker to that is our education system. Um, it's the, and this is something else that's worse in the US because public education is just shockingly bad in the US. Uh, in Britain, it's got its issues, but it's not that bad. But um, we don't have an education system or just a culture for that matter that encourages curiosity and encourages, you know, out of the box thinking. And, and innovators are really out of the box thinkers. Like I just did a, an interview on my podcast with Johan Norberg last week, and, and he was talking about the man who invented umbrellas uh, and how everyone laughed at him, you know, for the first sort of 15 years or so of him inventing the umbrella because he had this weird thing over his head and everyone's like, you know, you're a complete goof. But he just did it anyway and, and you know, didn't care. And if you look at somebody like Elon Musk, like, you know, the guy's putting out these ridiculous nonsensical tweets all the time, but he's just driven forward society so much with, with his um, innovations, in, in particularly in, in space and, and, and obviously in you know, car batteries and things like that as well. And then go right back to payment systems where he started. You know, he could, and uh, he's done a lot more for um, people back in South Africa as an American than he ever could have done as a South African because he's gone to where there's the freedom for him to do that. Um, but we only get a tiny proportion, I think, of the people like that that we could if we didn't have a, a, a system where like when you're at school and, and if you're interested in space, like I was at school, like I'm fascinated by astronomy and space flight and, you know, I'm drawing space shuttles on my homework diary and they, everyone else is into football and, and they're all be like, Oh, you, you're a nerd. And like, you know, that's just so destructive to us. You know, if, if civilization ends, that'll be why it's because we have this society that doesn't value curiosity. You know, it, we, we shouldn't really be in a situation where love Island is garnering millions upon millions of views and you know if you put a documentary out about you know something scientific you know hardly anyone watches it it, it should be the other way around and so we have this culture that doesn't encourage curiosity and doesn't encourage what we what we've now termed neurodiversity like you know people thinking differently think having a different approach to life so i think one thing we could really do is try and redesign our schools and you know I, obviously i think that the market would probably do this better than the state could but the state could certainly improve it in the right direction which you know gear our schools more towards encouraging curiosity, encouraging individual thought, free free thought, and, and you know, helping people build up and, and support their curiosity and, and not having this kind of system where, and it's partly the system and it's partly the culture where um, where that's kind of downtrodden and beaten out and, and we have this more groupthink mindset at school. So I think that's the really big thing. It's, you know, letting people be wacky and weird and, and pursue, their, pursue their funny ideas and, and creating a society that's free enough and, and Musk, as, as um, Robert Zubrin said when I interviewed him about this, Musk you was the intersection of that and people willing to pay for it. So you, you have two kinds of people to make innovation happen in a free society. You have people with ideas and people with money. And the people with ideas convince the people with money to put the money where the ideas are, and that's when magic well, I happens. like to think, and I, I imagine you'll agree, uh, having been to several ASI events, that we try and encourage that culture and tolerance and uh, respect for eccentricity within these walls um, to, to the extent that might be hoped for. Do you think that there's perhaps an aspect of, because we're in a position now in the 21st century where we're more comfortable, we don't have a kind of necessity to solve some of the problems that might lead to, say, back in the 1800s, our, our deaths on a mass basis, for example. Do you think that that plays a role in, in this kind of 
this move away from encouraging or, or valuing eccentricity, individuality and, and whatnot? Because it seems to me just when you mentioned the kind of Love Island garnering millions of views versus, say, a documentary about space, to me, at least, one of the reasons why that seems to be the case is because we're all pretty chill with our lives at the moment, at least if you're, you know, on uh, an average income in the United Kingdom, then things could be a lot better. But ultimately, we have the sense of comfort that, you know, most of our, our base level desires are satisfied. And actually, there's not as much of a need to to innovate and solve problems as there was um, in the 1800s. Um, there's a few things to unpack there. So one is definitely sort of the sort of Maslow point you're making, which is that, you know, people just take it for granted now that we don't have to, like, go out of our way to find food and drink. And uh, and the mistake a lot of people make from that is they assume that the comfort level we have now is the baseline. And if something's below that, like if, if, if there's poverty somewhere, the question is, why are they poor? And that's not at all the question. The poor is the, is the baseline. Like poor is what we all are before somebody improves things. So, uh, and, and you know this very well, I'm sure. But, you know, if you just look back, as Deirdre mentioned, like before the Industrial Revolution, the, the quality of life was shockingly bad. Like, you know, you were lucky to be born and live past infant mortality and then you know if you got up to 30 and 40 without dying of you know, tuberculosis or something then you were doing really damn well and you know, the few people who got past that were incredibly successful and you know even then you were spending all your time on a farm working your butt off and um and you know what the industrial revolution brought about was a society where you didn't need to be a member of a guild to innovate you didn't need to have the king's you know certificate to do something people could just do it and and that you, you guys made a wonderful documentary with martin durkin about the um, magna carta and, and the influence that had on the um on british society that you know over the subsequent 800 years and, and that really is just a process of more property rights being respected people knowing that if they invest in something they'll be able to keep it and reap the reward from it and having that incentive to, to do that privately uh, and the industrial revolution we think back on it now as this sort of smoky sooty you know, kind of, we have this Charles Dickens image of kids do, you know, working in factories. That was such an enormous improvement over what the situation was before, where kids were out in a field because they literally wouldn't survive if they weren't taking part in, in you know, keeping everyone alive. You know, it, it was, it looks crap now because we've gone so much further based on that original progress. But, you know, where we're at now is the direct result of, of that. And where we're going to be in 100, 200 years, if we play it right, is the result of where we are now. You know, people who want to end fossil fuels, you know, this kind of gleaming Star Trek utopia that they're picturing us moving to instead is only going to exist because of fossil fuels. So, you know, it's, it's really important to understand that, you know, although it's not always perfect, it's always a step towards something better. We're never going to reach perfect. Perfect doesn't exist. But, you know, if we were perfect, we would just sit at home all day and never think or do anything. There's always more to be done. But you know, we're never going to get to that better world if we don't build on what we've already got and keep allowing that innovation to carry on. We'll, we'll end up going the route of Greco-Roman civilization and just peaking and diving back down again because we didn't keep the things that made us prosperous in the first place. I think just a, a final question from me to, to finish up, and it's one that I've been curious about for a while. Rand's work and I think objectivism as a philosophy in general tends to use you know, representative heroic people, heroic beings, um, to illustrate the, the various values and, and philosophy um, that, that goes into objectivism. And I can see, obviously, the immense value of that as a, uh, as a kind of instructive tool and as a, a literary device for, for peaking interest. But I sometimes wonder, can you be, what, what would the kind of um, uh, 
an objectivist bin man look like, right? What, how can someone who is not Elon Musk or Howard Rourke um, or so on and so forth really live up to some of these values? Is it, do, you, do you think that there's, there's no kind of inconsistency there or, or no concern? Um, so I, th- I think when people think of, you know, sort of the, what people call a Randian hero, I don't really like that phrase, but um, I prefer the phrase Rockian hero because what what they're thinking about there is the character of Howard Rock from The Fountainhead or the character of John Galt from Atlas Shrugged, which are Rand's literally ideal man, like almost unrealistically ideal and intentionally so. It's, it's supposed to be the perfect embodiment of every virtue lived to the max. So it's not supposed to be, you should live like John Galt. You should use him as your idea of what literal perfect would look like and try and emulate his values. It's not you should literally live his life. And um, there are so many other characters in Rand's works, sort of more minor characters that do embody, you know, the objective is Bin Man, as you put it. Um, there's one scene where, she, where Dagny Taggart's just standing on the street corner and watches a guy steer a bus pass. Uh, past and remarks on how expertly steered the bus is and how you know, clearly into his job the driver is. And then throughout Atlas Shrug, there's a character called Eddie Willers, who is um, Dagny Taggart's sort of office assistant, you know, puts upon running around sort of secretary type character. Um, but he does his job so diligently and he clearly doesn't have the sort of deeper motivation that she has, but he has the same pride in his work that she has. And, you know, he knows what he values, what he wants to do, and he does it to the max. So, you know, Rand is, is not someone who or was not someone who sort of was interested in how you live your life. She doesn't want you to live up to her ideals. She wants you to live for yourself as best as you can. Uh, and only you, this is part of why freedom is essential, is only you know what the best life for you is. The government doesn't know what's best for you. Ayn Rand doesn't know what's best for you. You know, you know what's best for you. you know, we all know that you need food. But beyond, you know, beyond the obvious basics, like, you know, what's a happy life for you? I can't tell you that. So I, I can't go up to someone who's, you know, driving a bus or emptying a bin bag and say, oh, you, you're sucking at life. You know, that's you know, just because I wouldn't, you know, I actually probably would enjoy driving buses, but that's not something that, you know, it's, it's, that's not my job. And um, what, what, I, what you do judge people for, and one of the objectivist virtues is justice, which means, you know, she rejects the idea of, of um, you know, judge not lest you be judged yourself and says, no, judge and expect to be judged. Pass judgment on others, but do so objectively. So don't pass judgment on others for not being you. Pass judgment on others for not being the best them. So if somebody's born dirt poor and builds up to the point where they, you know, working in a car sales showroom and really happy with their life, you know, they have they are so heroic. That that's such a heroic thing to achieve to take a really bad start and turn it into something that some people might think is below them, but that is so much better for you and brings you happiness and flourishing. Versus if you're born into entitlement and you just kind of throw it all away and laze around and end up, you know, sort of smoking weed in the basement, you know, that's, you should judge someone for that. Like, you know, if somebody's taken a good start and thrown it away, that's really, you know, something that they should be judged for. It's not our job to walk around passing judgment on other people's lives for the hell of it. But if you're in a situation where you're, you know, deciding, should I help this person out or not? You know, should I be friends with this person or not? Then you make those sorts of judgments. You say, does this person embody the right values, the right ideas? Have they gone about their life in the right way? And, you know, there's a degree to which people get, you know, some slack on that and some chance to, you know, sort of adjust. But I used to have, when I was younger, this really kind of uppity, arrogant mindset of, you know, if you don't speak properly, then you know, I don't want to talk to you. You know, if, if you, you know, drop your T's and stuff like that. It would if you're a utilitarian, like, no. then, you know. <laughs> no, but it's, you know, that, that's really just context dropping because, you know, I'm just assuming that everyone had my upbringing and they didn't. 
and you know so it, i can't judge people on that kind of stuff i it's judging on concretes and what we need to do is judge on fundamentals judge on values and so you know if i see someone who you know doesn't talk the way i would but has clearly turned their life around and clearly has a benevolent mindset to people around them or even if they haven't turned their life around if they clearly have the right values at, at their core then you know that's so much more valuable you know I, I know a guy who um lived on the streets for a number of years and then decided that he was gonna get himself off and then try and help others get off and um he now runs a bus shelter that helps drug addicts who are living on the streets who can't you know get council housing because they always start fights in council housing they go and live in his bus and you know he helps them through that process because he's been through it himself he's heroic and the people who he helps are heroic and um versus you know i know a lot of rich entitled snobby people who speak beautifully and you know know all the etiquette but are complete jerks in real life so it's just not judging people on concrete it's judging people on on as best you can on their values and on their choices well i think that's a wonderful point to bring this podcast to an end uh, thank you very much for listening to this the pin factory podcast with my excellent guest today thomas walker worth if you like what you heard then please do like and subscribe to us on your chosen podcast provider and tom as well i think you should probably plug your own uh, wonderful podcast so where can listeners find that yeah, so uh, my wife, Angelica, and I, we make a podcast called Innovation Celebration, which is specifically celebrating science and technology and the progress in it. We, you know, we see this world where people you know, are, are saying that technology is bad and humans are a plague on the earth. And we're trying to push against that and say, no, technology and science are a wonderful thing that enhance and improve the world. So that's, that's our show. And then if you're interested in our writing and, and our other things we do, speaking tours and such, we have a website, walker-worth, W-E-R-T-H dot com um, where you can see all of our work together in one place well be sure to check both of those out and thank you very much for listening we'll see you next week for more analysis